0: and welcome to Manufacturing the Future. Today I'm speaking with Iskander Yavar. He's BDO National Leader, Manufacturing Practice and Management Advisory Services, and a board member at the National Association of Manufacturers. Iskander, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Jim. Happy to be here.
0: Iskander, your team has released the BDO 2021 Manufacturing Outlook CFO Survey, and it makes a very interesting reading. You know there are so many issues facing American manufacturing today, and, and most of these critical ones actually predate the COVID-19 crisis. Can we begin our talk talking about you know the new administration in Washington. You know uh, uh, President Biden has a Buy American proposals that I mean these things could impact supply chain planning for sure. And I, I understand according to your your data, 22% of mid-market manufacturers already were planning to reshore operations in 2021. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you know. Biden's plan around Buy America and the reshoring concept is not new. It's actually not a big change from what the previous administration was going down. As a matter of fact, it's really something that a lot of administrations globally are attacking these days. You see it as a European Union, Japanese and the South Korean government. Everybody is going through this rebalancing idea of the supply chain. For many, many decades, you know, we've been relying on uh, cost and labor, labor quality out of China. And what you're seeing now, I think, is that in the United States, as well as in Europe and, and East Asia, everybody's thinking about if there's a better way. And you're starting to see countries like Vietnam, Thailand, Malaysia, Mexico, put their hand up and say, we have the capabilities and the capacity to be part of that supply chain. For Biden, his challenge isn't is it a new concept. It's about funding. There's one study, Jim, that says, In order to incentivize just the computer chip manufacturing sector to bring some of that manufacturing back onshore, we need to, we need to put about $55 billion towards that investment just for one sector of manufacturing. And of course, the effective corporate tax rate has a lot to do with what U.S. manufacturers decide to do with their operations. So I, I think directionally, it's the right approach. Biden's all about we're resilient. We can, we can compete in a global economy and U.S. manufacturing will prevail but it's a complicated journey.
0: Scanner, I recall once um, visiting a, a valley just outside Taipei in Taiwan. And um, there they told me that the majority of the world's uh, computer motherboards were made there. And we're talking about an area which is not only geographically very condensed in one, one, one locale, but also a place that's near an earthquake zone. So the, the risk to global supply chains for something as mission critical as computer motherboards would seem to be colossal. But we've we've come to accept that risk in American manufacturing, haven't we?
1: absolutely and you know you see that across the board so the same thing happened was evident in pharmaceuticals during this pandemic if if you recall um, India put a hold on some critical uh, uh, medicines that we needed early on from a breathing perspective Um, across the board you see certain raw materials that only can be sourced through certain geographies a lot of it in China and it really is putting the pressure on U.S. manufacturers to think about the resilience resiliency of every node of their supply chain and what they want to do about it it's a Costly and time consuming exercise to set up redundancy and duplication in the supply chain. Many companies from the offset do that. Um, today, it's really about what's important from a strategic perspective. So, you're seeing some language in Biden's plan around what are strategic goods and services that we should be uh, manufacturing in the US, irregardless, and attacking that first. But uh, I think this is a two term policy that has to be implemented. He's not going to get it all done in the first term. And it coincides with the trade policies that are happening. So, whether it's Brexit in the European Union, all the free trade agreements, uh, everybody's trying to sign with each other, Um, you know, the the repositioning of NAFTA as an MCA agreement, Uh, that has to go hand-in-hand with what we're doing with supply chain, not to mention tariffs are a major factor when we talk to the manufacturing community. Um, I've had more calls, Jim, in the last quarter about U.S. manufacturers trying to find diversity in capacity outside of East Asia than I've had ever before. They want to know where else can they find manufacturing? Are there U.S. onshore manufacturers who can fulfill their demand? Uh, For us, that's a six to 12 month journey just to identify the right
0: resource. Do regulators understand supply chain in the same way manufacturers do? I'm thinking if uh, if I'm making toasters, uh, I want sheet stainless. But if we go sort of upstream from that, there of course is sheet stainless steel. And before that, there is steel. And before that, there is iron ore. So it's, the question is, is depending on where you think of it, the inputs are many to get down to the point where you get a finish, finished product at that point. Do regulators, as Washington understand basically how complex supply chain is in a manufacturing context?
1: You know, I think they do, but they have a different lens. And, you know, they're coming from a geopolitical relationship, national security perspective, and they're thinking about different lenses when they look at trade policy. Uh, honestly, business is thinking about a singular lens. How can I get goods to the market in the most profitable way? and you know we get wrapped up in some of that complication so you see things like country of origin play a big role in terms of making decisions around tariff policies and we get into you know arguments about how much conversion really affects you know the, the end result of the products being delivered to the marketplace so i think there's two different lenses that's why you know being part of an association like the national association of manufacturers whose sole purpose is to represent U.S. manufacturers and lobby for, you know, what's their interest is helpful. That's why these lobbying groups exist, because they represent the commerce side of of the value proposition. Regulators have to, you know, they have their own priorities and have to do their job. Ultimately, they're working for U.S. manufacturers, but it's complicated. They have to worry about geopolitical relationships, national security, IP rights and all those things.
0: Uh, we keep hearing how it's it's technology is the driver now. Everyone's it's uh, tech is, is on everyone's lips. The typical way that governments or regulators handle technology is through tax credits, R and D tax credits. But the taxation mechanism is usually the way that the way it operates. Is that going to be an effective way to get American manufacturing to invest?
1: You know, I, I really don't believe so. The the idea of um, providing incentives for U.S. manufacturers who are doing the research and development. Um, has been around for quite some time. R&D tax has occurred. but digital taxation is a hot topic across many regions of the world, whether it's in the US or the European Union. You, you, you see that now with um, some of the headlines out there. Uh, there's an, there was an article yesterday, Jim, that talked about how Facebook overpaid on some of the digital taxation um, issues that they've had recently in the European Union to the tune of several billion dollars. Um, so that's a complication, and we always know that the regulators are trying to keep up with commerce in terms of trends. I think the same thing is applying to um, the changing in manufacturers. So there's a lot of argument about, are manufacturers really becoming technology companies? And are technology companies really becoming manufacturers? Who would have thunk it that Facebook and Apple and all these companies were really going to try and invest in um, you know, autonomous driving, not only in the software side of it, but actually in the vehicles themselves? So changing competitive landscapes? Uh, You know, non-traditional competitors in the the automotive market are all factors, you know, as we kind of navigate this digital world. I, you know, I think at the end of the day, we all agree innovation is progress. The regulators have to keep up with it. The policies have to change and we have to know how to incentivize these manufacturers to, to keep on driving that continuous improvement.
0: I've noticed that uh, manufacturers I speak to tell me, uh, especially SMEs, uh, tell me a similar story that I remember hearing when I first was in the industry 30 years ago. And that, of course, is that cash is the lubricant that makes it work. We, we want to invest, but you know we need money. Now, your report states that 40% of manufacturers currently have insufficient cash on hand and 32% have difficulty obtaining new financing. And this sounds like a very familiar story that goes back long before, before technology at this point. Uh, interest rates are, are at historic lows. I mean, not even generational lows. These are these are these are historical lows going back millennia, and yet we still hear that access to capital is a fundamental issue for for smaller manufacturers. Why is that?
1: Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting, Jim, that that statistic and how it comes about. And I would tell you that a parallel to that in how uh, Main Street's performing versus the numbers you see from Wall Street, where we're at highs with some of these indexes, right? Um, you know, I think a lot of it is at time of survey. There's clearly a change in administration happening and, you know, investors take a wait and see approach, right? So they want to know what's going to happen with effective tax rates. You know, do we need to be making big moves around our supply chain? Uh, and let's let's hold back on some of that capital expenditure. Do we have more certainty in the marketplace? Um, today, vaccinations are being deployed. The administration has set some ground rules for direction where they want to go with uh, things like the World Trade Organization, uh, Biden just got off a call with Xi in terms of, you know, setting some tone for trade agreements with China. So I think you'll see that, that um, cash will start to flow a little bit better. I will tell you, as a leading indicator, we did not see in manufacturing the number of bankruptcies that we thought we were going to see a year ago. So that didn't come to fruition. And part of that is we believe that. Uh, Banks don't want to become owners, right? This is not mortgage-backed security crisis all over again where they had to take on the housing market. Um, They don't want to do that. So they had a little bit more leniency in debt covenants. Um, They they had a little bit more patience with some of the terms. And what we're seeing more and more is the outlook is optimistic. And I think you'll start to see some of that cash being released.
0: Scanner, it's uh, the other thing I hear over and over again and have um, for the last decade or so is a skills gap. Uh, there is, there's a, a chronic shortage. It's beyond chronic. I'd call it acute. There's an acute shortage, essentially, of, of skilled workers in the American economy. And this goes all the way from, from the shop floor uh, right up to the engineering, the, the de- design office at this point. Is, is there a way forward that we can address that that will fill those gaps in the short to medium term? We know what to do uh, in, on generational timescales, but we've got to get this thing going now. Uh, how big of a factor is this?
1: Jim, it's a huge factor. Uh, you know, there's a perception issue that uh, manufacturing and manufacturing jobs are, are dirty jobs. And it, nothing could be farther from the truth. There's a lot of programs in place that um, regional groups are trying to put, in, put to address this problem. So one is, you know, the advent of more and more trade schools and, and really teaching people some of the skills that are required and letting people know. And actually, the National Association of Manufacturers does a good job of it, that uh, you can have really lucrative, viable careers in manufacturing. That's a piece of it. The other piece is manufacturing jobs are changing and it's back to your digital point. More and more manufacturing companies are going to college campuses looking for technology savvy individuals to drive things around data analytics and lighting up that factory floor with sensor technology. So I think there's a tale of kind of two, two uh, manufacturing job stories, ensuring we have enough labor to fulfill the needs that we have today. And we, we outsourced a lot of those needs decades ago. So bringing that back is going to be interesting. And then the fact is, jobs are changing in manufacturing. And um, the academic institutions in our country are preparing for that. And I don't think it's gonna look the same way it looked 20 years ago. So just coming coming to that reality is gonna be important for manufacturers.
0: Uh, I, um, a story I hear a lot is that the, the educational system isn't training workers in a way that that makes them job ready when they arrive at my business. Uh, conversely, I hear, uh, those on the education side of, of, of the equation say, look is that we can't do that because the technology changes so quickly that essentially that we can't prepare people for your particular uh, use case. You're going to have to pick pick up the ball and, and run with that yourself. Where's the reality in there? Are they both right? I, you know, Jim, that's not a new
1: story, right? So um, technology has been a- increasing rapidly for several several de- decades. And so we've been, you know, today the, the news permutation is around in manufacturing, for example, things like industry 4.0 technologies, right? But 40 years ago, it was the internet coming online and computers being put into the factory floor. So I'm not sure that's a new story. That's a, that's kind of a supply and demand issue with talent and technology with manufacturers that always exists. Uh, I don't think it's going to change ever because technology is going to always be you know evolving as we go. So I, you know, there's some truth in both. So I think the important thing is um, collaborative approaches to making sure that we are arming the job seekers with the job opportunities. And when you see that happening, I think there's pockets of goodness.
0: Uh, in 1961, General Motors, New Jersey die-casting plant, they installed the first general purpose robot for, for, for production application. And from that point on, for 60 years, we have been hearing in the mass media about how uh, stay out of manufacturing, automation is going to destroy jobs, It's robots will be running everything. Um, we are still waiting for that world where robots drive everything. And from what I hear, manufacturing is that firms that are highly automated have a greater need for skilled people than they did before. So this is 180-degree polar opposite of what the, 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 the public or the mass public think about automation and, and, and careers in manufacturing, the future of manufacturing. Is this, is this sort of, of information gap, is this perception gap, is it, are, do we have to bridge that to move manufacturing forward? You absolutely have to bridge
1: it. It's continuous education. You know, the, the robots will not take over the country. Um, I think you heard that. Yeah, it actually came out in the in the past presidential campaign. Some of those candidates ran on those platforms. Um, you know, clearly there's gaps. We, ha- we don't have enough skilled CDL drivers now from an uh, internal country distribution network, right? We need more. We need more truck drivers. Right. So that so if you think about supply chain and logistics, the gap isn't getting the raw materials to our to our ports and the conversion process with our manufacturers. We don't have enough trucks to get the goods out to meet the expectations of the consumers today, which is what it's I want it now. I want it fast. I want it on time. That requires a ton of trucking, a ton of last mile logistics, um, you know, and, and people that are at our forefront of that, i.e. Amazon are experimenting, but they're also setting the bar. Uh, I will say this. There is an interesting phenomenon happening, and I don't think it's one that um, eliminates the need for skilled labor, to your point. I think it's requiring more and more skilled labor, but it's companies that are born digital. So their operating model and their business plan is one that takes advantage of direct-to-consumer channels, e-commerce platforms, um, touchless fulfillment centers, and a lot of robotics in the warehouse. But we're not seeing that it takes, you know, uh, it eliminates tons of jobs in those environments. What we are seeing is they're able to fulfill orders at 20% of standard cost, so they're highly competitive. They're growing rapidly. With that growth, c- growth comes more jobs and more need. They're setting up more distribution centers. I mean, in their trajectories, much different. That curve of growth is much different than the traditional manufacturer. So, I think your question and you know your hypothesis is spot on. That education gap is critical. We got to continuously feed that gap and make sure people are on the same page. Um, I'm I'm hoping as they get the education, the fear subsides. Right. This. Fear is not a healthy way to go about business.
0: Uh, we at engineering.com, we've noticed uh, a significant growth in, in modern contract manufacturing services, ones that operate you know, uh, virtually to a point where many firms that used to, to, to do things in-house are increasingly incented, essentially, to simply being their CAD file to a firm operated by people they've never met in a place they've never been and then simply have FedEx deliver their flanges or their or their widgets at, at the loading dock in, in this sort of mysterious kind of, of black box where they simply throw information and money and then products come back the other way and it's uh, for, for, for people of my generation it's almost disorienting to see this and it, it, it would intrinsically feel uncomfortable to relinquish that level of control but the system seems to work are, are we going to look at a future now where where it's very gray a gray area so whether or not I make things in my factory or I don't
1: yeah, absolutely. Not only are we looking at, you know, those factors, we're looking even at the uh, 3PLs and the logistics providers getting into the manufacturing game. So both Federal Express and UPS in this country announced in the last several years, $100 million investments in some cases on additive manufacturing, 3D printers. And that's another paradigm shift. So, you know, whereas they would just move the product from point A to point B. They're now actually cutting out one of the manufacturers and saying, "We're going to build this. We can print this. We can print this cell phone case, which was our first, you know, in, endeavor by Federal Express. We can do it. We don't have to go to this supplier, and we can cut out a piece of the cost and do it faster." So there's all kinds of paradigm shifts happening. Uh, you know, the, I would say the one any crisis is an indicator of the ingenuity that we're going to see in the future, and and the one promising thing that I saw is. 3D printing and additive manufacturing were kind of Star Wars type rhetoric, you know, several years ago. Uh, what I, what I learned personally through the crisis that we've been living is uh, manufacturers are innovative. And there's many stories of manufacturers innovating in crisis, whether it's uh, taking their the additive manufacturing capabilities and making PPE, whether it's taking their distilleries and making sanitizing hand sanitizers, uh, there's numerous stories like that. I think that's the essence of US manufacturing. We're able to adapt. We didn't let a good crisis go, you know, get get wasted. And I think you're gonna see more and more of that changing landscape. Logistics providers becoming non-traditional competitors with added manufacturing capabilities, um, the, the use of robotics, technology companies building cars, the whole landscape's getting disrupted. I think in a good way, forcing forcing people to really think about continuous improvement and innovation.
0: Oh, last question and an inevitable question you're better plugged into american manufacturing than 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 most people in industry um extrapolate past COVID, 10 years 15 years from now at this point uh does america become the world's manufacturing powerhouse again or is it distributed amongst multiple countries uh, what's the outlook
1: yeah i think the um the rebalancing that's happening right now and you're seeing that through some of the trade agreements is going to continue i think china is going to continue to have a strong role in manufacturing but less than they have today I think you'll see the rise of emerging countries, the ones I mentioned previously, Vietnam, Thailand, Malaysia, South Korea and India. Um, I, I, so that that will happen. And it's, I think that's healthy for everybody. I also think if you turn to the U.S. of the past, right, America of the past, we've always been on the cutting edge of innovation. Think about the technology that came out, televisions, VCRs, all the digital equipment out there. That IP was born and raised in the U.S. Right. And others took advantage of it. That's not going to change whether it's technology firms creating autonomous vehicles, we're gonna to continue to lead in innovation. We have an environment set up for that and we'll continue to play a leading role. I think the trick's gonna become how much of the manufacturing do we actually do in our country? How much can we do? How much do we wanna to do to be competitive versus how much we share in this global global world? And and isolationist protectionist attitudes from our administration versus coalition building will be a key role there. Um, we are now global, we have been global, and there's no going back, just like digital, Jim. It is not, we're not gonna be less digital tomorrow. We're not gonna be less global tomorrow. So our our outlook and our lens on how we deal with that from a manufacturing perspective is gonna be critical. My bet is on U.S. manufacturing leading in innovation and taking advantage of the global supply chain to, to be one of the premier leaders.
0: Iskander, you our BDO national leader manufacturing practice, thanks for joining me today.
1: Jim, thank you very much for having me, it was a pleasure.
0: And thank you everyone for watching. See you again next time on Manufacturing the Future.